You're listening to The Message from the Hillsborough United Methodist Church, our weekly sermon broadcast available for working around the home, your commute, or wherever God calls you to listen. has been a frightening week. It has been a week that has left many of us angry or confused, heartbroken at what we've seen. It has been a hard week. And in the aftermath of the insurrection, the the thing that happened in our capital on Wednesday, a lot of people were quick to say something like, this is not who we are. The president-elect said almost exactly that in his speech in the aftermath. And in one sense, I understand what people are saying when they say that. Because, in fact, those who brought violence to our nation's capital on Wednesday do not represent the majority of who we are as a nation. Most of us reject that kind of work and and action. Most of us want to be something other than violent. And so I understand that when people say, this is not who we are, they are inviting us to a better view of who we can be. And we need to be honest and say that, in fact, in a lot of ways, this is who we are. But what happened on Wednesday in our capital, as people carried weapons into our nation's capital building, as people called for the assassination of political leaders, incited by our own president, We cannot say that what happened on Wednesday is an aberration. It is, in fact, a part of who we are. From the very beginnings of this nation, the first time that Europeans came to this continent, they came with the assumption that it belonged to them, even though there were millions of people already here. They came with weapons and with an assumption that whatever they wanted was theirs. And they did so not only with the backing of governments, but of the church as well. And when and where the wisdom and the provisions of the indigenous people, where the friendship was helpful and beneficial, the Europeans were all too willing to receive that. And when they wanted to expand and grow and take more and more, 
they were all too willing to sacrifice the lives and well-being of the nations who were already here. The people who created this nation <clears throat> were all too willing to enslave people, to own generations of human beings, to do their labor, to benefit from the wicked abuse of others. And when they did so, they did so not only with the support and encouragement of the government, they often did so with the support and encouragement of the church. And while it is true that the church also became one of the engines for the abolitionist movement, it is also true that it was not clear in the church where the gospel was being employed. That half of the church believed that the gospel called them to enslave other people. That they were justified by God to do that evil. So we cannot say when white nationalism rears its head in our country that this is not who we are because it is to a large degree a part of who we are. Our history is littered with the stories of one group of people taking and abusing and stealing and killing, gaining power from themselves over and against the good, the well-being, and the, the lives of others. The evils in our nation didn't cease with the end of the Civil War. You know this. We all know this is our history. And they didn't magically go away at any point in our history. There are still people being killed because of the color of their skin. There are still people who are receiving less access to the things that make for health and well-being in our country because of the color of their skin, because of the nation they come from, because of the language they speak. White supremacy is still an infestation in our systems. And it was one of the driving forces in what happened in our nation's capital on Wednesday. It is not coincidental that we began to see a rise in right-wing terror groups in our own country with the election of the first person of color to president. It is not accidental. And if you look at the history of our nation, the violence, the atrocities, the evil that have been so prevalent are perpetuated by white folks seeking power and willing to kill for it. We cannot pretend this is not who we are. It's not the only story of who we are. 
but we cannot pretend that this is not a significant portion of our history. And until we address it in truth and honesty, and until we begin to do the real work of healing the evil in our own nation, it will not get better. We're quick to want to cover over and pretend. And already we've heard so many folks who are calling for reaching out and healing and ignoring the thing that has just happened. But if you and I owned a house and we began to see some small cracks in the walls or in the ceiling, we might spackle over them the first time, but if they keep reappearing, we might recognize that the problem is not in the cracks in the ceiling or in the, the walls that we see, it's in the foundation. And until we address that problem, the house is only going to become more and more dangerous. We cannot just cover over the things that are happening in our midst in the name of unity and healing without addressing the real systemic problem that causes it. Because it will only get more dangerous. And we have to admit and confess that the church has too often been an engine of white supremacy and of Christian nationalism in this country. How many times over the last nine months when we've been asked by our government to, and by our leaders to be careful about how we gather so that we can save lives? Have you seen people proclaiming, well, we as a church have to get together and they have protests and gather without masks, without social distancing. They sing and praise God. And what they do is an affront to God because it puts lives in danger. And it is not disconnected from what happened in Washington, D.C. That sense of aggrievement and the sense of white rage that you see boiling over is also a part of what's happening in our churches too often. People want to say this is not who we are, but we have to be honest and say it is partly, at least, who we are. Nations and organizations and systems of government and systems of economy do not have a God-given identity. They might have values at their core. They might have ideals at their core. They might have a shared sense of something at their center but they do not have a God-given identity, these human institutions. They are who, they are what they do. And so when we look at our nation's history, we cannot say this is not who we are because we are what we have done. We are what happens and what is happening. And to close our eyes to that allows it to grow. You and I, and every person you know and encounter, every person who has ever lived, we have a God-given identity. 
We are beloved children of God. When everything else falls away, that is what remains at the core of our being, that we are beloved by God. Those other ways that we are shaped and identified, those other layers that make us who we are, that build our personalities, that fill out our lives, that, that identify us with others and build us into community, those things are good and important. But they are not the core of who we are. Our God-given identity is a beloved child of God, and everything else begins to build on that foundation. When Paul shows up with those folks in Acts and he says, hey, uh, Holy Spirit, you guys got that? And they say, well, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Say, oh, well, were you baptized? Says, yeah, we had John's baptism. It's this weird story, right? Like we don't talk about the early church all that much and the, the sort of confusion about how things worked in those days. But they had been baptized. And then Paul shows up and says, uh, Holy Spirit. And they go, huh? I don't know what you're talking about. He says, oh, well, we're going to John's baptism. John's baptism, says Paul, is for repentance. But the baptism of the early church, they understood to be a new identity. And that's why Paul invites them to, to lay, lays his hand on them, invites them to receive the Holy Spirit, to be identified in a new way. The early church understood the baptism the, the, the right of baptism to be a, a point of dying to your old life and being born to this new life, to this new identity. And that new identity is not one that is pulled from somewhere out there. It is actually a rediscovery and a reclaiming of the identity at the core of who we are as a beloved child of God. When Jesus is baptized in the Jordan, as he comes up out of the water, he has this vision of the heavens and earth being united, the, the veil of heaven is pulled back, is torn open. And the dove is, descends as a, as a sign and symbol, and Jesus hears that voice, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And Paul will later write to those early Christians that when we are brought into the church, when we are baptized... We are adopted into the same identity of Jesus as a beloved child of God because that is who we are. We are beloved at the very core of our being. And that belovedness is not to elevate us over and against others. But rather, that belovedness invites us into a life of service and love. It puts us at the feet of our friends, washing their feet. It puts us at the feet of those like Jesus who, will be, who like Jesus' experience, will betray us, washing their feet. Ooh. Belovedness moves us from a sense of our own self-superiority our own sense of self-importance, and into a much larger sense of identity with all of God's children. Because once we experience and know our belovedness, 
We begin to recognize it in every other person. And when we see that belovedness in others, we cannot, we cannot hold ourselves over them. Not without doing harm to the image of God that resides within us. This is the conundrum of human life. We are all beloved, and we so often do harm to the image of God in which we are made by the ways that we live and act in the world. And I would suggest that the way that we often do harm to others is by forgetting who we are. By forgetting our sense of identity as beloved children of God, because no one who has experienced that, that belovedness, no one who recognizes that in someone else could do the things that we so often do to others. And being baptized, participating in church, being part of a community of faith, does not keep us from doing harm to others sometimes intentionally, more often unintentionally. But it happens. John Wesley talked about this conundrum of the Christian life, of the belovedness in which we are identified, the image of God that, in which we are made, and the sinful nature that so often has us do harm to others. And in resolving that, the, the way that he talked about that, he said, we are all sin sick. And that the image of God is so marred by our illness, our sinfulness, that it's so, it can very, very seldom shine out until, until we offer ourselves to be shaped by God's love. Not by our own sense of importance, not by our own sense of who we want to be, not by our own sense of of power and agency in the world, but rather only when we offer ourselves entirely to be servants of God's love in the world, do we begin to shine forth with the image of God that resides in us. When we baptize folks in the United Methodist faith into this denomination, we ask a bunch of questions. This is my uh, hymnal, which also has the uh, baptismal service in it. And when we're doing this, I'll say, okay, everybody turn to page 40 or whatever, and we start going. And I love, I've had this uh, since my seminary days, so 20 years or so now. And uh, these pages are all, uh, they, well, they've got a lot of water on them. <laughs> They're a little wrinkly in spots, but... These are the questions that we ask, and here are the first two questions. Before we ask the third question, the third question is, do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior? Which we think of being as like the point of baptism, but these are the first two questions. Before we get to that one, here's what being baptized means. On behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness, reject the evil powers of this world, and repent of your sins? And do you accept the freedom and power that God gives you to resist evil, injustice, 
and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. When we are baptized, we are invited to remember that we are beloved, that we are able to reject and repent of our sin, and that we are able to speak up in love and service to the world, to reject the evil forces of this world, to reject the wickedness of this world, forces of oppression in this world. This is who we are, and it is who we are called to be. John Wesley wrote this covenant prayer that we have used every year that I've been here, and I know for times before I was here, years before I was here, you've shared this prayer in worship. And he used this prayer quite often as he traveled around England and inviting people to a life lived in the experience of community and of spiritual wholeness. And they would pray this prayer at least once a year because it reminds us of who we are and it is a continual striving after who we are called to be. In this prayer, we offer ourselves wholly and completely to God to be used for God's loving purposes in our world. Who are we? We are God's beloved children. Imperfect and broken, surrounded by God's grace that we might endeavor to do more faithfully the work that God calls us to. So I invite you to join with me as we pray this prayer from John Wesley that Methodists have prayed for centuries now reminding us who we are and whose we are. I invite you to pray along with me. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to waiting. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Thank you for listening to the message from Hillsborough United Methodist Church. Our senior pastor is Clay Andrew. Our pastor for Las Naciones Hispanic Ministries is Jorge Rodriguez. Our media ministers are Kevin Proctor, Janica Stewart, Perry Hume, Al Dietrich, Christy Proctor, and 
day for us. Presently, our live stream of services are available at 10 a.m. on the Hillsborough United Methodist Church YouTube page. You can find out more, like us on Facebook, or subscribe to our YouTube at hillsboroughumc.org. Thank you.